Good morning, church. It's so good to be with you today. I want to welcome everyone that's watching online with us as well as in person. Uh, my name is Ben Seaman, and I serve on staff here as our lead minister, primary uh, communicator, and we're so glad that you're with us today. We, uh, well, last weekend, we just kicked off a brand new teaching series called Movement and Meals, and we're exploring seven meals, seven dinner conversations that Jesus had with the religious elite, or as Luke describes, sinners. And so we're so glad that you're here, uh, really inviting in, listening in, leaning in with our ear. I don't know if you eavesdrop when you're at dinner with your friends on another table that Jesus is feasting with, uh, people that uh, society casts out and people that think that they're more religious than Jesus himself. Before we jump into our message today, I want to invite uh, everyone that's new to RCC, or if you've not been to our starting point class, this is our 101 class into our, our church. Uh, you should really uh, get to know a church before you commit to it, um, so you can decide if this is the right fit for you. And for us, that's what starting point is. And you can sign up for starting point, again, by texting the word TOWARDS uh, to the 10-digit number on your screen. Uh, it, starting point is uh, the first Wednesday of every month. It's about a 30 to 40-minute Zoom meeting with myself and other folks like you that are interested in the church and some of our volunteer staff that head up that pathway value to journey towards Jesus and would love for you to come. Uh, this past uh, week, I was able to spend some time with my friend, uh, Gail Martin. Uh, Gail and Stephen Martin have been at RCC for, for many, many years. Uh, Gail's part of our journey out team. Part of our pathway value at RCC is that in our journey with Jesus, we would journey out to love and serve where we live, but also explore our world. And Gail uh, has a heart, and Stephen have a heart for missions. And this photo was taken about two or three days ago. Yes, you don't have to tell me. My mask is awesome. You can get it at Etsy if you love The Office, and why would you? You wouldn't like that heathen show, Parks and Rec, right? And so um, we had about a two-hour conversation at uh, her house, uh, at her table, six feet apart, uh, mask on. And I had not seen Gail for probably five or six months. And to be honest with you, I didn't care if I had to wear a mask, I didn't care if it was 65 feet uh, distance. I mean, I would have gotten on a megaphone. That would have been fun because we're both, we're both loud. Love you, Gail. Um, but here's the deal. I have found in, during this pandemic, as well as some of my friends that I've spoken with, that the desire to get together is there, but actually picking up the phone or texting or calling somebody, it seems like that's when we stop. You know, and I, and I wonder if just because of the pandemic that our energy and our emotional energy and desire to be with people is a little low, which, you know, that's not a judgment. I totally get that. I, I feel that way, too. But that's part of why we're doing this series, that every home has a table, a dining room table, a kitchen table, and every restaurant hopefully has tables. And so what we're challenging our church to do is over the next seven weeks, at least once, if not twice, to get a handful of RCC folks and folks that are friends of yours that maybe aren't connected to a church and share a meal together, uh, obviously with people that are respective of your values and the way you live your life during COVID-19, but it's an opportunity to do life, share faith, have those conversations uh, with folks that are near and far from Jesus. So I would encourage you over the next couple of weeks to do that. 
Put that on your calendar. And as I said, if you don't want people to come over to your house, do what Jesus did. Go party at somebody else's house, right? There's tons of restaurants in Salem. Big win for the restaurant uh, community. Like the other day I saw on my Facebook feed that restaurants can now seat at capacity, which is a huge step forward. So they're just like saying, come on, come do ministry at my restaurant, right? Obviously, if you're a Christian, you need to tip well. Uh, today, we're going to talk about the second movement in meal. Last week, we talked about the movement towards grace. Today, we're going to talk about a movement towards community. Now, I got to take us back to Leviticus. I know it'll make sense before we get to Luke, okay? Uh, in Leviticus 23:42, uh, Moses writes, "Live in temple uh, temporary shelters for seven days." All native-born Israelites are to live in such shelters, so your descendants will know that I, uh, that I had the Israelites live in temporary shelters when I brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now, this is a photo of sort of like a makeshift temple or uh, a tent that God commanded uh, Moses to tell the Israelites to do. This is called the Feast of Tabernacle, the Feast of Booths, or if you want to get super uh, Jewish, the, the word is S-U-K-K-O-T-H. You can ask Google Translator how to pronounce it, because I have a tough time pronouncing it. This, would, this took about uh, around October, and as the text said, it would last seven days. You need to think about this in terms of how we do Halloween. It's the one night a year where you're like, oh, that's my neighbor. Okay, see you next year, right? All of the kids are on the street, lights are on. People are having a good time. They're dressed up, free candy. It's amazing, right? That's sort of what the Temple of the Booth or Temple of the Feast, of, Feast of the Tabernacle was kind of like. Homes were open to the community. People would eat their meals when they were done. This is why I love Thanksgiving. They would go to their neighbor's house and say, what kind of wine do you have? What kind of food do you have? And they would just generally share the evening together. Now, in this tent, there would be a, a, a table, like a picnic table in there. The Israelites would, would thank God for three things and then pray for three things in the future. What they're thankful for, they also pray for. God's protection, right? Keep us safe. Because when you're a nomadic people, you're exposed to the elements, to animals, and to enemies. Sometimes animals are your enemies. God's protection, God's provision. This is a culture that depends on farming, if the crop is not good, they would translate that as God must not care about us. And so thank you, God, for your protection, your provision. And you'll notice at the top of this makeshift tent, uh, not, I mean, this isn't like how all of them look. Families can get, you know, decorative and creative with their own. And I'm sure there was probably neighborhood jealousy like there is today about yards looking better. Um, there was a sort of a sheet or a banner at the top of this thing that resembled the peace of God. So they would pray for God's protection, God's provision, and God's peace for their family. All of this was happening in the middle of Luke chapter 7. And you'll care about that, hopefully, if I do my job well in about 17 minutes and 52 seconds, okay? This is happening, this conversation, this meal is happening with Jesus in the midst of this seven-day celebration, what still happens today in Jewish communities. So in Luke 7, 36 through 39, we read the beginning of this story. When one of the Pharisees, his name's 
you'll find out will be Simon, invited Jesus to have dinner with him. He went to the Pharisee's house, because who would turn down a free meal, and reclined at the table. A woman in that town, which we don't unfortunately know her name, uh, female names were not recorded, sadly, uh, in a lot of uh, old text. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life, that's a phrase that Luke uses almost every meal that we're going to look at, uh, learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So this is going on, this feast, and, oh, wait, the rabbi's here? I'm going to go to somebody else's house and see what they're up to, which was normal. This was socially normal to crash other people's parties during this festival. It was actually anticipated, right? And so here's what happened. When she learned that Jesus was in the Pharisee's house, she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him, Jesus, at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Now, when the Pharisees, i.e. the rest of the men in the room, had invited him, Jesus, they saw this, he said to himself, Simon's thinking to himself under his breath, if this man were a prophet, he would know who touched him and what kind of woman she is. Here's the phrase, that she is a sinner, that she is a sinner. Now, what I want to do is build on our big idea throughout three uh, movements of this meal. And the first one is this, my friends. The movement towards community begins with a desire to belong. Everybody wants to belong. Whether, you know, know, it's one of the things, like as I think about school starting, it's every desire and hope that a parent and their child, like the child would find community in their school. And it's the same is true, same is true for students. They want to belong. They, they want to feel in. There's nothing worse than getting ghosted. There's nothing worse than being in a group text for a few months, and then you find out that your friends started another group text, and you're not in it. The desire to belong is a good, natural, spiritual desire that God puts in us, right? Like even Adam and Eve in a perfect world you still lacked community. It's a part of our life that God himself will not fill. We need to be in community. Even psychologists today will say that an adult that does not attach themselves to other healthy relationships is an adult that is immature and underdeveloped. One of my favorite authors and pastors is a guy by the name of John Orberg, pastor to church in uh, California. He wrote a book. You got to take a deep breath to say it. Ready? Everybody's normal until you get to know them. Now that's funny, okay? You can laugh because it's true. People can seem uh, attractive and beautiful and impressive and amazing really far away or as we like to do online, right? There's that Instagram effect that I'm gonna make you think that I have a better life than I actually, than I actually do. And anyways, in the, in the book, he tells a story about the time he and his wife, Nancy, went to the mall to go shopping. And uh, John Ortberg and I have the same love and affection for shopping, which we hate it. And uh, that's not true. I'm going to love it. And he would always go to the store uh, that his wife went to, and he would go to the men's section, but he would make a beeline for the back of the room. Because at the back of the room, that's where all the cheap stuff was, right? The, the things that weren't fashion forward, and the, the sales department had to get rid of them. And in the book, he talks about how those clothes were a lot, uh, they're cheaper because they need to get rid of them. But 
he also noticed that there was a tag on them. I think you have one when you uh, came into our worship services today. If you're at home and you're like, oh, I don't have one, grab something that you can write down and uh, would love for you to keep it. And if you're here as well, keep it in your car, hanging somewhere in your house. It's just a reminder. It'll make more sense in a few minutes. The tag would read as is, meaning if you take the sweater home, or if you take the shirt, the button-up shirt home, and you think you're thinner than you are, and you go home and you put it on, it doesn't quite fit. You, it's as is. You cannot return it. You're kind of stuck with it. And <clears throat> there's a really cool parallel and analogy that John Orberg is making, is that in this text, in all the whole of Scripture, is that Jesus is inviting us to look at people as as-is relationships. Religion will do two things to you. It will give you pride, and it will give you despair. It will give you pride in the sense of uh, the immaturity will leak out this way. And we we just read it with Simon. Well, if, if, if Jesus were a prophet, if he were a good rabbi, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. Because she is a sinner, and sinners, and even non-sinners that are female, you don't touch rabbis in the first century. And especially that she's a sinner, she would be ceremonially unclean, right? So pride leads us, or religion leads us to pride. I am better than everybody else at what? Being a good Christian boy or girl. I'm good at obeying the rules. Religion will also lead you to despair, I felt that. Hopefully you felt that because I only want to feel that way once to know that I never want to be religious another day in my life. It leads to despair when you finally realize that you will never be good enough. You will never be moral enough. You will never have enough consistent, awesome, perfectly ethical days (laughs) that you don't need to consider the weight of the cross and the weight of your sin. That's what's happening here with Simon. And that's why he's sort of socially hiding behind this guise, which he's not actually wrong, freaking out about a female touching Jesus's feet when she should not even be there in the first place. Here's a photo of what's actually happening, an artist's rendition. Now, Jesus is in white. It's a thing that artists do. I don't know that he always wore white, but here we are. And he's sitting actually at the head of the table. In the first century, tables looked more like horseshoes, right? And so The host, Simon, uh, would have been on Jesus's left, uh, and they would have leaned in on their right forearm and elbow and eat food and drink wine with their other arm, depending on if they're left-handed or right-handed, right? And so Jesus and Simon are uh, sitting prominently at the head of the table, although the table is not a circle or a square. It looks more like a horseshoe. And customary in that culture, and even today in Jewish culture, in that culture today, it was common for you to interrupt parties if you socially obeyed the rules. And so this female comes in, which never happens in the first century. Women do not interrupt men uh, over a, a meal. And she comes in and busts up this party and begins to put her hair down, which is what you would do when you were going to have sex with your husband in the first century. It's a very intimate expression. And then she begins crying, not, 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 just, not just Hallmark Christmas movie crying, but ugly crying, snots coming out of her nose. She's sweating. She's in despair. And then she begins kissing Jesus's 
feed. These are two drastically different responses that people have towards Jesus. One is to be religious in Jesus's presence, and one is to be completely aware of your brokenness and even your own sin. See, the movement towards community begins with a desire to belong. That's also why Jesus ate dinner at tables to talk about the kingdom of God, because he knew that not everybody felt comfortable going to a first century, to a synagogue, or we would say a church service. They, they don't actually think that that's where they'll find community. It may be shame on the church if that's true, but everybody likes to eat, right? Restaurants are generally neutral, and so Jesus set up part of his ministry to talk about the kingdom of God over a meal. Now, the movement towards community begins with a desire to belong, but it's a desire that also allows space to work out faith. Simon and this woman need to work out their faith in response to the gospel. In verse 39, Luke writes, The Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him, that she's a sinner. Jesus answered, I love this. Jesus is the master at throwing shade. Hey, Simon, come here. I have something to tell you. Now, remember, Simon and Jesus are, are like super close, right? Not six feet apart. They were very close. And so when Simon probably muttered under his breath or making fun of, slightly making fun of Jesus, definitely making fun of the woman, when he said, if this man knew who she was, that she was a sinner, yeah, Jesus would have overheard that. Don't you hate that when you're like mumbling under your breath and your spouse is like, what'd you say? And then that moment you have to like lie in the most holiest ways possible because you don't want to die, but then you're not allowed to like lie to your spouse. Yeah, he overheard Simon. And then he goes, hey, Simon, come here. I have a story I want to tell you. Oh, okay. okay. Because when you're a host and you invite the guest of honor and they show interest to you in front of all of your friends right, at uh, whatever your favorite restaurant is, you kind of, oh, okay, something cool's going to happen. He said, hey, 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 Simon, hey, two people owed a bunch of money. One owed 500 denarii and one owed 50. Now, neither of them had the capability of paying it back, and yet both of them were forgiven. Now, now Simon, listen, now, which one of them, <laughs> which one of them will love him more? Simon replied, almost like, is this a qu- trick question? I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. Notice what Jesus says here. You, you have judged correctly. Right? Good, good rabbis and good Jewish students would hear a rabbinic question and know that the answer is not about the question, but around the question. I know it's pretty crazy. It's like an episode of uh, the show Lost. It's not always directive. Jesus is saying, I know what you're doing. You're judging this woman, and by your judgment, you think that A, I'm not a prophet, which you're wrong, and B, that uh, I'm just allowing anybody to come to me. And then he tells the story. Two people owe a lot of money, one more than the other, both get forgiven. Who's more grateful? Well, obviously the one that has a bigger debt. Here's the point, guys. Simon is in debt. <laughs> and he doesn't even know it. That's why religion leads you to despair. At some point in your journey with Jesus, you got so excited about the church you were going to. You gave your life to Christ. You expressed that publicly in Christian baptism. 
And then over time, things happened. You, you attend church less or this or that, and your heart grows cold. And you don't get excited when prostitutes interrupt dinners. You don't get excited about the fact that in the eight or nine weeks, next week, I think it'll be nine weeks that we've been open, in the month of August alone, five people have journeyed towards Jesus in baptism. Like, that doesn't excite you anymore. Jesus, Simon, you've judged correctly, but you are unaware of your sin. If you were to ask me, Ben, what's one story, and I could be wrong, that's fine, won't be the last time, what's one story that summarizes the New Testament and the gospel? Easy, Luke 15, parable of the prodigal son, right? Because you have the elder brother who, quote unquote, does the right thing, right? He's he behaves well. He's home by 10. He treats his girlfriends with respect. He works the farm. He listens to his mom and his dad. He says, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. He's not like his heathen younger brother who says, dad, I wish you were dead so I can take your inheritance and run and basically live like MTV uh, spring break edition, right? It is very easy <clears throat> to become arrogant and to maintain arrogance and to be judgmental of other people when you perceive yourself as doing and being the right thing. And the gospel is for you, Christian. You need to be reminded of the depth of your sin and your brokenness, of just how much you need intimacy with Christ that you once had and you once cherished so much and so deeply at some point in your life. Right? And our hearts are not neutral. They, our hearts are worship factories. They want attachment. They want meaning. And they will do whatever it takes to find meaning, even if it kills them. Literally. And then you had the, the prodigal son, right? The guy who obviously on paper did the most terrible. He told his dad, Dad, I wish you were dead. Give me my money. And yet, when he came home, the dad said, this is my son. He spent years, we don't know how long, years, months, days away from me. But now he's back. You see, the gospel is not just for the sinner that Luke talks about. It is also for the Christian that Simon is completely, completely unaware of. We do not need to get in the pattern of yeah, I accepted Christ when I was 15 or whatever, and I got baptized. Now I'm moving on. The point of the gospel is not that you move on beyond the cross. is that you drill down into it to find its depth and its beauty in light of your sin and your brokenness, that it still wants to be with you as much as you sometimes want to run away from it. This is how Simon is detaching himself from this local prostitute. And yet, what is the response of the woman as she's working out her faith and she's working out her spirituality? We can't get it twisted and think that people who don't attend church, maybe never attended church, are not interested in God. Quite, I, for me personally, I can't speak for everybody, that's quite the opposite. They just haven't had Christians willing to ask them the question. Right? Oh, you, they'll get invited to their church, but Having someone share the gospel in real time at a gym or at a restaurant or at a coffee shop, that, that's a completely different level of commitment that they're not used to. And so what did the woman do? She fell at Jesus' feet. Problem, Jesus didn't have an Uber. He walked everywhere. They were stanky. 
And Simon didn't clean his feet, Jesus' feet. And so she uses water to clean Jesus' feet. She pulls her hair down, as I said, an intimate response of when a husband and wife would make love together in their marriage bed. And then she begins kissing Jesus' feet. And this isn't just, my friends, this is not just a peck on the cheek. Uh, sometimes, um, pre-Rona, I would uh, just watch people in an airport, and I would basically judge them, I'm being honest, on, about the depth of their love, right? Because people that are farther apart, the longest or longer, tend to embrace um, pretty intensely. And they, they hug each other, they run up, and they plant a big old kiss on each other, and they're just holding on to each other for dear life. That's what this woman is doing. When the text says that Jesus, the, the woman kissed Jesus' feet, she is planting her lips on his feet over and over and over and over and over again, as if to say, Jesus, forgive me. Jesus, forgive me. I'm sorry. Can I be in your presence? Can I have community with you? Can I actually be forgiven? Let's, let's talk about sex, sexuality, and the gospel here, because Luke is bringing it up. You have a woman that is admittedly, uh, according to the text, a local prostitute, and she has an alabaster jar, and she has so many clients throughout her day, 24-7, I would imagine, that she can't go home and take a shower, so she uses this perfume on her body to get ready for the next client. Out of everybody at that dinner party, you might assume, and maybe you'd be correct, that though she might be the most sexually active, she had the lowest level of intimacy. And what did she do? <laughs> she went to the guy, which might be a modern-day miracle in 2020, who died a 33-year-old virgin and said with her lips, will you forgive me, will you forgive me, will you forgive me? We get it confused and we get it twisted when we think sex is synonymous with intimacy. Sex is an intimate experience between a husband and a wife. But you would also be correct if you said Jesus was the most, though he died a virgin, was the most intimate human being that ever walked the planet. Because women didn't have a problem being around Jesus. Jesus would not be another face in the Me Too movement. Jesus would not pressure women to do things sexually with him. He would not make fun of women. He actually rebuked men a lot in the Gospels for how he treated women, like was Simon. Also, two men, like <clears throat> Jesus was easy to be around because he didn't, thank God he wasn't American, he didn't grow up in this toxic masculine American culture where we puff out our chest and we're only men if we can change oil and shoot guns, right? Men felt comfortable around Jesus. Men that loved art and read and cried and wrote music and men that shot guns and could change oil. Theoretically, they didn't have cars back then. Every gender was comfortable in the presence of Jesus. And I just love the depth of theology that this woman is giving us. The person that you might argue has the least amount of intimacy is going to the person who had never had sex in his life and yet had the most profoundly deep, intimate relationships. And she goes to him asking for forgiveness. Listen, friends, the highest form of intimacy is not sex. 
is not sexuality. It is being in the presence of Jesus. You want a great sex life? Get to know Jesus. Because if Jesus is who he claimed to be and who you believe to be, if he is God, then he created the experience of sex, of sexuality, of genders. And anything you say about human sexuality in the same breath, you are saying, oh, this is what Jesus intended for sexuality to be about and to mean and to find its meaning. You want to be a great lover to your spouse? Get to know the person of Jesus. And my heart breaks for Simon because his religion is pushing him away. It will not allow this woman who is so broken, so unaware, uh, he is so unaware of his brokenness and his sin that he just pulls the religion card and says, what, what, what is happening here? And listen, friends, I'm going to say this until I'm blue in the face and then a different color and you're going to roll your eyes. Like, we get it, we get it. I'm going to say it again because you don't believe it. The gospel allows us to be bad in the presence of love. Jesus was not blushing over the fact that this woman lived her life the way that she did. Because she was not, he was not judging her on how he lived her life in the past or present Jesus tended to always look at people in terms of the trajectory of where he could take them. We call that discipleship. If they were willing to actually follow him, Simon and this woman needed space. They needed a table to work out their faith. 100%, the most profound conversations in the 15 or 20 years I've been in ministry have not been in a church building. They've been at uh, coffee shops and restaurants and backyards and, and cookouts and barbecues. They've, food has always seemed to be part of my life and having those conversations because there's something about sharing a meal at a table where socially we know what's acceptable to do and it takes down our defenses and it gives us an opportunity to ask and be willing to respond to questions that maybe we would not be willing to do or ask in a more formal setting. Friends, the movement towards community begins with a desire to belong that allows space for people to work out their faith while the group points itself to Jesus. If you are in a life group or a Bible study of any kind, and they never challenge you to follow Jesus, they never point you to Jesus, you're not in a small group, you're in a book club. Right? And there's a fine line between a, a life group and a book club. Every good community, Jesus community, always points people to Jesus. And how that can get derailed is, I'm struggling with so-and-so, would you give me your opinion of how you would deal with this? Yeah, give your opinion, but also point them to, <laughs> point them to Jesus. People tend to not have questions about Jesus until their life is in a situation where that's, that's who they need. In Luke 7, 48 through 50, I'll close with this. Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. But what is he also saying? Simon, you're right. I am a prophet. Because you don't know, just because a, a homeless rabbi says your sins are forgiven, you don't know that as actually a thing until you what? Until you die. And in this statement, Jesus is verifying, yes, Simon, I am a prophet. I can predict the future because I'm like God. I'm, 
living in the past, I'm living in the present, and I'm also living in the future. Your sins are forgiven. The other guests, the other religious guys, began to say among themselves, whispering probably, who is this who even forgives sins? Because in Judaism, there's no such thing as God becoming man in their, in their view of God. Like Christianity is the only view with a trinity where God would become one of us. So it was obscure and asinine to think that God would actually become one of us and a homeless guy. Like not even a political person of clout and money, a home, the lowest of the low. And Jesus said to the woman, listen to this, your faith has saved you. What does he tell her to do? Go in peace. What is hanging above these makeshift tents on this night? The banner of peace that God's people are praying for. On that night, on that holiday, in October, we're like five weeks away from this festival, the God of peace was present. And what did Simon do? He chose religious rules to distance himself from this woman. And what did the woman do? She laid it all out in front of Jesus. Said, I'm aware of my sin. I'm aware of my brokenness. I'm aware of my high-risk behavior. I just wanted to stop. And she found community and she found the gospel over a glass of wine and a Jewish first century meal. My friends, the movement towards community begins with a desire to belong that allows other people to work out their faith. And that group of people points them to the person in the work of Jesus. This is the movement towards community. Let me pray. Jesus, thanks so much for being a person that's both black and white and also perceptive. Black and white in the sense that you call sin for what it is, but also perceptive in that there's a wideness in your mercy that we probably cannot find in our own. I know that Simon probably couldn't have found it in his own, which is why he was so perplexed that you would let this person eat with you. Would you invite us into what that means for us? Would you remind us, Spirit, would you agitate us about our as-is person? The person, you know, honestly, if we had a dinner party, they'd probably be like three people deep on the, you know, on the bench in case of other people that we prefer to be with cancel. We, would you teach us about that? Like why we do that? Why we judge people? Why we distance ourselves from others? And why we cling to other people? Jesus, I can't think of a more incredible opportunity than a global pandemic to use not a church building, but a dinner table to talk about the gospel and to share with people what you mean to us in our journey that others might be encouraged to even begin or deepen their journey with you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.